Welcome to episode 276 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Marshall Bach. Welcome back to another episode. We're in the endgame now, Marshall. <laughs> what? Avengers Endgame. Yeah. We're in the endgame now. Are you with me? Are we quitting? <laughs> oh, no. I'm just saying that was a, it's been a pretty momentous week for me. Oh, yeah, yeah. I watched the trailer like 10 times. <laughs> oh, I haven't seen it yet. I don't watch whoa, trailers. Whoa, whoa. Oh, so this is a thing that we share actually until this trailer. Yeah. Because I normally don't, but I'm like, fuck it. I'm super hyped for, for the end game. Also, IRL, we're kind of in the end game. You're uh, about to wrap up for the holidays. We're getting close to the end of the year. True. So it's about yeah. that time of year. The 2018 end game is approaching. Yes, quickly. Winter is coming. <laughs> Indeed. Well, let's get into the episode. Uh, you have a little bit of follow-up for us, Marshall. I do. Not too much. Just uh, one thing, as I was listening back to the previous episode where I was talking about the smart home stuff and the amount of money I've spent on it, I realized that it sounds like a huge amount of money, and it is. Uh, but I wanted to uh, clarify that I mentioned how my bed is like a sleep number bed. The major components of that $10,000 that I mentioned are basically my bed was several thousand dollars, and uh, I also included the washer and dryer in there because I mentioned those things as examples, so I figured it was important to include them in the overall price. If anybody was scared by that astronomical number, that's not necessary. You could have a really nice, thorough setup for a couple thousand dollars if you can if you can swing it. So, I mean, that's a laptop, so that's a pretty you know substantial figure still, but a lot less than ten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just wanted to clear that up. Marshall's not a billionaire yet. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> yeah. Also, I don't spend my money on really anything else. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, good follow up. Um, no news this week. I think it was kind of a, a quiet week so maybe we can get straight into some listener questions yeah yeah i'm excited to do this so we've done this a time or two before where yeah. we've answered listener questions and people send them in over the weeks and we compile them and then we'll do episodes like this where we bundle a few together so yeah. we have three today and the first one comes from race switcher who i believe has uh asked a question from us before race thank you for writing this in and i think this is a really good one so here's what race says you guys should talk about hidden shortcuts that can be super confusing for users. This is very near and dear to my heart. Uh, one that was getting a lot of buzz recently was the hard press shortcut on iPhone to move the cursor around freely. Despite it being a couple years old, it went super viral on Twitter, so plenty of people clearly had no clue. Another one I know of is on Google Chrome Mobile. I still don't know how it works, but there's some way to close the tab you're on by selecting something and tapping the top bar. It's like the secret menu of phones. And I think I know what he's talking about with that second one, but as far as the, the long press on the, the keyboard, yeah, this has been around for a while, but you can 3D touch on the keyboard, and I think on phones that don't support 3D touch, it's long press on the space bar. Well, actually, I'm confirming this now you can 3d touch on the keyboard or you can long press on the spacebar yeah yeah and swipe on the spacebar yeah this is one thing that is not commonly known i guess based on the reaction to that because i saw one morning i woke up and looked at the news and it was i saw like three or four different stories on it i'm like this shit is a year old this is not new news boring <laughs> yeah right <laughs> plebs <laughs> get on marshall's level it's a really great useful tool and so all the things that we're going to talk we're going to have a bunch of hidden shortcuts that we're going to talk about here. So get your notepad ready. But yeah, I think all of these have an analog as a, a dedicated button somewhere else in the UI that is an easy way to get to it, but it's maybe a longer way to get there. This is the slow versus pro thing I was talking about right. a few episodes ago. 
So uh, yeah, so the way to normally do this is you long press on the text field and you get the little magnifying glass and you can put your cursor wherever you want to, but sometimes it's finicky. And your finger is on top of the text. Yeah, and I mean, it pops the little magnifying glass above your thumb. A little bit, yeah. That doesn't yeah. help a ton, yeah, that you're reaching up further from the keyboard because you really want to keep your fingers down at the bottom of the screen. So this is a way to have the same versatility. Now, I think that the third-party access to this is less thorough than the first-party access. So I think if you have a third-party keyboard, all you can do is move the cursor to the left or to the right wrapping. With the iOS keyboard, you can move it around in XY space a lot more freely. So if you use the default keyboard, this is much more useful than if you have a third-party keyboard. I don't use a third-party keyboard, so you've tried. I use that G-board. I know, I know. That's good. Swipe type, man. Swiping is so good. Let's just rapid fire these. We just came up with a list of shortcuts or keyboard commands that Marshall and I have found useful that are non-obvious that I guess in this day and age could warrant a blog post on The Verge and, and <laughs> get retweeted. Uh, but we'll just run through these really quick and... Fake internet points, man. You got to rack them up. All right. Do you want to start with... I think you have a few here, Marshall. So while we're in the neighborhood of the keyboard, there's a there's several others that, that I'm a big fan of. The first one, I use this all the time, especially for question mark. So instead of tapping the one, two, three, like uh, change keyboard character or uh, key in the bottom left, uh, and then tapping question mark, what you can do is you can tap and drag from that key to, and it will uh, automatically change the keyboard, and as soon as you touch up, as soon as you lift off and a character will switch back to the normal ABC character, uh, keyboard, which is super useful. I use that all the time for exclamation point and, and question mark. All about saving taps. Eventually it just becomes a gesture, right? Where right. you just like slide it over. Uh, another one is extra characters. So long pressing on a character, you have all the eyes with different strokes above them and E's with umlauts. Stuff. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, that's like long pressing. Also, that's good for uncertain keyboards. Like if you're entering an email address and, and the keyboard has the the at character next to the to the space bar. The dot button becomes uh, .com if you long press it. And there's also .ed, oh, uh, yeah. .org, and .edu, and .net. Yeah. And some of the, the punctuation you can long press, and you get access to, like, alt uh, ASCII characters. Like, if you're on a keyboard, you can press, like, you know, alt-8 or something to get a, a bullet point. You can do similar things on iOS. You can long press on a hyphen. It's hidden under hyphen, I believe. Another one is we mentioned a, a couple episodes ago where you can undock the, the iPad keyboard and, and slide it around and split it apart into two. And that's done by a, a button that normally hides the keyboard entirely, which is a little strange. Another one is the double space period. This is pretty common. I think it's probably the most well-known is just tap space twice and it gives you a period in the space. Right. So getting away from keyboards, I think there's a whole world of 3D touch is hidden. Uh, and you just kind of have to push hard on your phone on different things and see if it works or not. But one of the ones that I use all the time is app launch icon shortcuts. So big ones for me are uh, search in YouTube or search in the Google search app, creating a new tab in Safari, going to a recent conversation in messages. Another one that I use a lot is in settings, you can jump to your Wi-Fi settings or Bluetooth settings straight from the app icon quick link, I think it's what it's called, quick link. And another one that I use that's another stock thing is, is searching in the app store or going to like my purchased list or something like that to see if a, an app that I already have. But usually it's just search. That's, that's always nice to get into because not only does it take you to the right tab in the screen, but it usually puts your cursor into the input field and brings the keyboard up. Saving those taps. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Another one that's pretty hard to find is the reachability uh, shortcut on iPhone 10. I have no idea how to do it. I'm about to learn. Let me show you. 
you swipe down on the home indicator at the bottom of the screen. You have to have it on, obviously. I, th I think it's a setting that might not be on by default, but you swipe down on it, which is kind of hard to do, and a lot of times you, you do it the wrong way, uh, or you'll accidentally scroll down when you don't mean to. Oh, reachability. Swipe down on the bottom edge of the screen to bring the top end reach. I did not know about this, but it looks like you have to turn it on in settings. Kind of finicky. It's almost too hard to do. Yeah, it's finicky. You have to realize that you can actually swipe further above it down than you would normally expect it to be. Like you don't have to get just the last like 20 dips or whatever, 20, sorry, 20 points. Yeah, you have a little bit more leeway to swipe down, but I use that relatively frequently to get into control center because it's so far up. Right. So I can still do one-handed control center and it still works from the top. Right. Brian's mind is blown. My mind's blown. I didn't know you could do that. You just pog champed real hard. Oh, you can do it from the springboard as well. Oh, wow. Holy shit. Yeah, that's mostly where I use it. Oh, wow. This is great. Did oh. I just change your world? Yeah. I'm so <laughs> glad we recorded this episode. <laughs> <laughs> We're learning here together. Okay. Hopefully yeah. you'll teach me some things too. So reachability, that one's pretty hard to find and hard to actually perform. Another one that uh, is, this is mostly third party because Apple doesn't support dark mode in iOS, but in TweetBot, there is a, a two-finger scroll down gesture and two-finger scroll up that turns down as dark mode, up as light mode. And I think if you have the pro or whatever, if you've given them the money, you can have more themes that you'll just cycle through when you swipe up or down with two fingers. But two-finger scroll, who has ever used that? Nobody. Here's another one I just thought of off the top of the dome, not even on the list. Freestyle. <laughs> yeah, here you go. I'm not freestyle rapping on this podcast, Brian. Don't try it. In Google Maps, this is one of my favorite gestures of all time. You can double tap and on the second tap, keep holding down and swipe up or swipe down to zoom the map in or out. That is a great one. It's so good. On Apple Maps, the same thing is a two-finger tap or two-finger double tap. I forget what it is, but that will zoom you out. But you have to have a grip on your phone that allows you to tap two fingers at once, which is basically like having two-handed use. So. Right, right. Yeah. Figuring out one-handed zoom is... Mm -hmm. And the the solution is really, really good. Like it works pretty well. But how do you describe that gesture? Like double tap and swipe or double tap, but hold the last tap, then <laughs> yeah. move your finger up and down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just a really simple tooltip could explain that. <laughs> yeah. And then I think you had one from Spotify, but I'm going to steal it and then hand over the list to you because the rest are yours. So cool. in Spotify, if you use it on the mini player, you can swipe left and right to advance tracks forward and backward. Super useful, but it does not imply that that is a thing you can do at all. But yeah, the mini player in its compressed state. Additionally, in the tab bar, the search tab, if you tap on it once, you go to the search tab, obviously. If you tap on that tab again while you're already on it, it puts your cursor into the text field entry and brings the keyboard up so you don't have to reach and hit that field. That should become a standard for every search tab ever made in existence Across is the board. tap it again, focus the input. I'm surprised they haven't included this because it's one of those no-brainers. Anyways, um, another thing to do with that search tab is you can tap and hold on it and then it will bring up voice control, which is a, a pretty nice mental connection between those two things. Right. I think Spotify has done some pretty nice things as far as quick access to common places in the app. Pressing and holding on tab bars is also really uncommon like you wouldn't think to do it in most places so i'm curious which ones we've missed tweetbot has this so the last tweetbot is a five tab app but the last two tabs are changeable you can customize them yeah, yeah there's a list so instead of doing the traditional ios more tab dot 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 more tab where you can choose and, and rearrange what those app icons are or what those tabs are the last two are configurable and you can can pick from a list the first three are locked down it's always my home feed my mentions and my dms but you can choose the last two to be search or favorites 
or account or a few other things, lists and stuff like that, which is actually really nice. So you can right. customize it to how you want to do it and you can change it on the fly as you like. It's just a long press away. Yeah, that's nice. Okay, good ones. All right, I have a bunch from macOS. Let me let me go through my iOS one since we're there first. iOS, all right, you are on an article on Safari and you want to find an instance of a word on that page. Like you want to jump to a section. It took me forever to figure out how to do this. But the way you do it is you go back to the URL bar and you type for what you're searching for. And at the bottom, like you have to scroll past search suggestions to the very bottom. And then it will have a section called find on page and it will let you search for what you've typed in the search bar. This is like the least obvious thing ever. But uh, (laughs) once you figure it out, it does make using uh, Safari easier. Although I don't use Safari anymore. DuckDuckGo. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah, dude. A couple more helpful ones on iOS. These are also Safari, ironically. Um, If you long press on the refresh button, you can get a desktop site. So if you're ever on a website that has a really shitty mobile version, you're like, do I really have to go get my computer to fucking use this website? No, just long press the refresh button. It will prompt you to open the desktop site. Another one in in Safari as well, I think we talked about this a while ago, is you can long press on the tabs icon in the bottom and that will give you options to close all tabs so you don't swipe all your 150 tabs away like an idiot. You can do it in in one button. Another one that I really, really love on iOS is in Control Center. Uh, most of the widgets you can 3D touch and then drag to sort of quick jump into specific things. So the one that I use the most is uh, the stopwatch or the timer. So instead of tapping the widget to open the clock app and then you set your timer, you can actually just 3D touch and drag up and down. It has smart presets like uh, I think the the notches are one minute, two minute, three, four, five, and then it sort of scales up and then the max is two hours. So I use that all the time to set like a, a three minute timer or something. Yeah, flashlight does the same thing on your home flashlight screen. Flashlight does the same thing. But then, yeah, the same thing for volume and brightness in there as well. You know what they call those little things? Those little squares? They call them platters. I think I heard this in a WWDC talk, which I think is a nice word to differentiate it because you start to run out of terminology eventually, right? right. Like you can only have so many tiles and buttons. and um, So yeah, I thought platter was a nice new addition to the lexicon. Yeah, it's worth 3D touching your way around because a lot of those offer up many helpful menu items. Um, You know, you can like 3D touch the networking sort of top left configuration to open your airdrop and uh, personal hotspot toggles so you don't have to open settings. I think the 3D touch ones we could just go on forever because there's a lot but I like uh, in messages you can 3D touch to sort of peek into a conversation Uh, but if you 3D touch on a person's face on the left column you actually get different options so you can just Ah. quickly send money or is it like a hover card type thing like a the options for you for example are uh, message which is weird because I'm already in a message but the other options are call uh, face time or pay so quicker ways to do actions that you otherwise have to go into the conversation tap your face at the top go into info like do all these things right wow i've never noticed this see i learned something today this is great okay let me jump into uh just a couple mac ones that i've found useful all right if you have upgraded to macOS Mojave and you've taken a screenshot, they added the behavior where you get the little floating screenshot in the bottom. So let me explain why this was a horrible, horrible decision. So if you sync your screenshots to Dropbox, like a sane person, which you should be doing, you should sync your screenshots to Dropbox. I don't. You should. And I can. we can talk about this all I day. I think I'm iCloud through photos, but yeah, sure. Fine. Okay, sure. If you have the floating thumbnail, that floating thumbnail is the screenshot before it is persisted to be saved anywhere. So... For example, if you want something to show up in 
your Dropbox folder, there's like a three second delay where you get the floating thumbnail and then it slides to the left and then it's saved in the destination. Super annoying if you're moving fast. Uh, you can swipe it away and it'll automatically do it. Or if you take another yeah, yeah. one, they stack up and you can swipe those away. Or you could just not have it. And the way to get rid of it, <laughs> which I Googled and anyone could Google, but so normally you could do Command Shift 3 to take a screenshot of your screen, Command Shift 4 to have a draggable region. You can do Command Shift 5. And when you take a screenshot from Command Shift 5, you get this whole settings view of screenshot controls. And one of the controls that you can turn off is the floating thumbnail. And there's a bunch of other things that you can do in, in the Command Shift 5 mode. I always use Command Option Shift number because that saves it to your clipboard instead of creating a file so I can put it wherever I want to, which is usually into Sketch. Shit. <laughs> well, I learned something too. <laughs> yeah. So I'll do Command Option Shift 4 from, from now on. Okay. Cool. That's why I've never seen the thing go away because I never don't use the option. I see. There we go. All right. A couple more. I feel like this is the equivalent of the double spaced enter period on iOS, but command space on macOS open spotlight, which is just a much faster way to navigate a computer than clicking on icons and things like that or navigating finder to open files. You just command space type. And I think you can override that maybe with like, or maybe there's an alternative for Alfred or people that use finder or, or spotlight replacements. I use spotlight. It's fine. So command space is a, a way to use your computer much, much faster than the average person. Yeah. Spotlight all day, every day. Yes. Do you use command control space? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. For emoji. Yeah. 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 When you said it, I couldn't register what that would be. Yeah. I use that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Control command space. And it does a little pop-up. Opens the emoji picker. And you can start typing immediately and it will do a sub search. That's a good one. Good call. All right. A couple more here. Command tilde. Command tab to switch applications. That's another pretty well-known one. Uh, but you can go back in the list by doing command shift tab or command tilde. So if you're moving your mouse to your dock to switch apps, you should stop and use command tab. It's just faster. Oh boy. Yeah. And if you are in a windowed application, so like if you have multiple windows open in Chrome for whatever reason, like maybe you have an incognito window and a non-incognito window and you want to switch between those quickly, command tilde will switch windows in an application. That's a good one. And then the reason that I can't use Safari and that I use Chrome is command option left and right arrow keys is navigate tabs. And I couldn't use Figma for forever because Figma has a tabbed interface and command option left, right didn't work, but they added support for that recently. So you can also command option left, right arrow key to navigate tabs in Figma and Chrome better way. Huh. You can also do like command one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine to go to tabs. Yeah. But if you have more tabs than 10, which I almost always do, I use command shift left and right square bracket. And then there's like weird overlaps with navigation commands in like editor, like a VS code editor or Atom or something like that. So that's what I would use to switch tabs in VS code. Yeah. Maybe I learned it in another app and I, I transferred it to Chrome because it was muscle memory. It's like a uh, command left and right square brackets. You can also use it to move indentation. Okay, that was a rapid fire. I'm out. I'm out of things. Wow. Yeah, that was a lot of things. I don't know how this is going to come across, but I guess for people listening, you can pause on each of those if you don't know about them and, and play around. And hopefully, uh, I think we both learned a useful one. I learned how to take better screenshots. Okay, listeners, if you know of other shortcuts or hidden gestures or things like that, tweet at us. Design Details FM. We want to know. Maybe we can compile a master list somewhere, Marshall, on the Spec FM website of useful tricks like these. Okay. The next question comes from Colin Lees. He says, 
Hey guys, I'm a bit of a new listener, around two months. Welcome, Colin. And I'm loving the podcast. Ah, oh, so nice. Thank you. Thank you so much. And there's no question. We're done. All right. Oh, thanks, Colin. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. No, he says, uh, you may have touched on this before, but I was wondering if you would consider discussing design education on an upcoming episode. What kind of design-related education do you or your peers tend to have? Is there a case for designers with no formal education at all? And he's getting near the end of his arts degree in Canada, and he's excited about next stuff, but uh, curious about how other people got to where they are. So we have two examples of people who got where they are. Yeah, I, I think I've seen the entire range here. So for me, that means it's not a bad thing to not have a formal design education, but I imagine it would probably help in many ways as far as networking or you know getting your foot in the door at different places like you know HCI program at Carnegie Mellon. That's a thing that like funnels into big tech companies, but I do not have that. And I managed to work at a big tech company. Same with you. So the fact that I've met people along this entire spectrum of design education from none to you know the most formal you could have says to me that it's not negative to not have it, but it is a positive to have it. Yep. It's a bonus. It's a bonus on top of like a table stakes. You're fine. I, I would say that it is important to have a degree, if only to prove <laughs> to people that you're interviewing with like, hey, I'm responsible. I can show up to class on time and and see a thing through to the end. I'm responsible and people who are themselves responsible say that I'm responsible. So believe me and hire me, right? I hear what you're saying, but we also know tons of college dropouts that are successful designers sure, sure, in sure. the field, right? Again, it helps a lot, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's a shortcut. It's a shorthand for I am a reliable employee. Yeah. We should have an episode someday. I don't know. We, we need to come up with more examples, but I love these proxies for understanding a person. And I feel like the degree is that. It's this proxy of, I don't really need to know what you learned, but the fact that you have the degree can tell me a few things. One, that you show up to class. Two, that you probably have some like baseline of responsibility and ability to interact with other people and collaborate. Like you can infer a ton from someone that has a degree, whether or not they learned anything in, in college, right? Yeah, my, my degree is in media arts and animation, which is not completely unrelated, but uh, and a lot of the animation principles I learned have been great for doing delightful transitions and stuff throughout the years. But aside from that, it's like, yeah, it's just a piece of paper that says I'm responsible. Yeah. So I guess advice to Colin, I think you're probably fine anyway, any way you go, but it's a bonus to have it certainly just as around networking and like learning more things is never a bad thing, right? Yeah, you'll, you'll have a head start. You don't have to add the extra years of, of learning and knowledge and experimentation on top of your already four years in college. Cool. So last question comes from Sam Chang, who I believe has asked a question on the show before. Sam Chang sucks on Twitter. Yeah, I remember his <laughs> username. Sam, we said this last time. You can't be so hard on yourself. Sam Chang rocks. Uh, so he says... Something that's been on my mind lately is the overlap between a designer and a developer. I've noticed, for example, that Brian has taken on more of a developer role at Spectrum, and so I'm curious to hear if Brian sees himself as more of a designer or a developer, or maybe just a builder. So, Brian, how doth thine see thyself? I have a lot of ego wrapped up in not ever having the title of being an engineer. I feel like it's a chip on my shoulder that I'm like, ah, I want that. Uh, I want to be like formally recognized as a, a developer. I feel like you've put in the hours. I've put in the hours, but I've never had the title. So as a result, I just say I'm a designer and I, I happen to be able to build things on the side. This is why I was confused last episode when we announced that you had joined GitHub as part of Spectrum. I was I thought that you would have more of a developer role because that's a lot of what you did on, on Spectrum. So I, right. I assumed that was part of it. I think it's hard, you know, 
we'll see how things go. But you know, my role will be product design, which I think is appropriately vague in that you can do a lot of things under that umbrella, including building things. I think most product designers at GitHub are technical and build things, which is why I'm particularly excited to be joining them. But yeah, I don't think it's not a requirement and it's not like a listing on the hiring page that you have to be able to implement in your designs. So... I think there's some ego in there for me about like, ah, it'd be, feel good to have that title. But if I take that off the table, then I realize it doesn't matter. And this feels very similar to the design education question. It's like, is it going to hurt you if you've never programmed an iOS app? Should designers code, Brian? I'm not saying that. <laughs> okay. Like, no, it's not going to hurt you. There's a, a million designers that have jobs and they've never built an iOS app. Is it going to help you if you know how to do it? Yeah, of course. Like knowing more things is better than knowing less things. Fewer things. God Damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Knowing all the things is better than... (sighs) (laughs) Now I'm all tripped up, Marshall. (laughs) Yeah, so there's also tons of other disciplines that don't have to be around development that are also this way, right? Like animation or 3D or hardware, like especially if you're getting into VR. Like there's all these other things that you could learn that have nothing to do with development that also are not prerequisites for being a quote unquote product designer, but spending time in them and learning them and becoming efficient and or proficient with them is a net positive. I think that's a good thing. Yeah, this is this is something I think about a lot, which is the crossover between designer and developer. And and while I think a designer who can write code is super useful. And and typically, if you're very good at both, you're referred to as a unicorn, which is a a great title to have, if only, you know. (laughs) I saw someone tweet today that we should not call people unicorns anymore for various reasons. (laughs) I think the reverse is actually more valuable. If If you are a developer who is excellent at writing code, but you have a designer's eye and you can recognize when something looks bad. That's the dream, right? Yeah, that's far more. And like, I have several of those on the team at my job it's like those people i trust implicitly because not only do they understand what's happening in the code but they can check me on my shit and gut check and suggest very good ideas for alternatives for things it's it's like probably the most powerful combination of designer and developers one who can write code and also has a designer's eye yeah i agree i think that's pretty powerful I would say, though, that I think the tooling is changing in such a way that a lot of this is becoming more accessible to designers. I think Framer is the example here to call out as, you know, it started out as purely a code-based tool, and they've sort of navigated the way of making them blend together, and there's the design mode and the code mode, and you can touch both at the same time, and, and that feels like the future, not somebody that is either in a design tool or in a development tool. It's like somebody that is in a product building tool, and Framer is on the right path there, and Of course, everyone else is working on that as well, but that feels like the direction. Totally. Like the inverse is absolutely true as well, which is if you have at least a basic understanding of how code works and you can think like an engineer in the same way that you would want them to think like a designer when they're implementing your designs, if you can think like an engineer as you're designing the thing that they're going to code up, you can cut out a lot of stuff that's just not possible or not feasible and set it up in such a way, not only in the overall design, but also in your hierarchy of your sketch file or whatever application you're working in, if you can set up that file in such a way that it's easy for them to realize where divs are or you know how it's structured, it can inform how the code is written on the other end. So that's that's super useful too. And and you can save them a lot of time and effort and hassle of having to say, yeah, we can't do this. <laughs> like this just doesn't happen. I hear you and I 100% agree. But I think there is one caveat here where... Hit me. If you are a designer who has learned how to build things, but is not an expert, 
So I have run into this several times myself. I stop myself from designing a thing because I think, oh, that would be hard for me to build, not hard to build in general. Um, like an expert could do this, but I don't have access to an expert. So I'm going to tone it down because I know it's what I know how to do. And I think that's a way to sort of shoot yourself in the foot is falling into that trap of thinking, I think it's hard, therefore I won't design it this way. There's also something to consider is like the size of the company that you work at. If you're at a startup, you can kind of do whatever the hell you want to because you're not leveraging years and years of code that has been stacked on top of each other and become a house of cards or people who have written stuff are gone and nobody knows how that portion of the code works anymore and you have to kind of work around it otherwise everything breaks like the longer a code base has existed the the more likely it is that it's hard to put new things into it without having to rewrite entire sections sure it seems like there's something to be said too of being ignorant of the implementation details because i wonder if you come up with ideas that an engineer might look at and say that's going to be really fucking hard but they're the kind of engineer that gets excited by things that are really fucking hard. Totally. And the end result is you have invented a new paradigm, something new, something creative that is very hard to replicate and sets you apart, which you might have never gone down that path if you had knowledge of code or enough knowledge to think in your head like, ah, this is going to be too hard. Yeah, you can cut yourself off from some promising opportunities if you just declare defeat immediately. Right. So uh, I don't know. I think we answered... Sam Chang. Yeah. Are you not satisfied, Sam? <laughs> yeah. What more do you want from us? <laughs> thing about this conversation, because it comes up a lot, is I think it's a false dichotomy and even just like a false premise of a question because of the tooling like Framer and the tooling like Webflow. Like there are companies building products that make it so you don't have to think about am I designing or am I developing? You're just building the thing and like they'll hide some complexity from you, but then you can dig into it if you really need to. That's the the kind of future where you no longer have to ask, are you a designer? Are you a developer? You just say like, let's build this thing, right? Yeah, the lines are very, very blurred. And I, th I think Sam's description of builder is probably one of the, the better yeah. single terms to describe what we do. I like the term software designer over product designer because I feel like software designer has this like catch-all around part of the development as well. Like you're designing the software. Well, it's also a lot more specific like... If I made toys, I'd still be a product designer, right? right? Whereas, yeah, this is a little bit more specific yeah, software. That's a totally different beast than dealing with materials and manufacturing. and Which, by the way, is a very funny conversation to have when you leave Silicon Valley. Because here, if you say, what do you do? Product design. You just assume software. You go to New York and you meet someone. I've met someone. Say, what do you do? Oh, I'm a product designer. Say, like, oh, in fashion? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Cool. Hope that was helpful, Sam. So I think that was a pretty successful listener questions section. Um, and all that's left is one cool things. Start us off, Marshall. What'd you find this week? Oh, okay. Video games. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Uh-huh. <laughs> Who could have seen this one coming? I hope there's a, enough of an overlap in our listenership that <laughs> this isn't completely annoying. But I'm going to recommend uh, a YouTube channel. Something I discovered relatively recently, uh, it's a channel called Summoning Salt. And what he does is he puts up analyses or rundowns of gaming world record speedruns and the progression that they've made over the years since the first speedrun was recorded and where the latest speedrun is today. And he'll go through and say, you know, so it started off like this and this is the, you know, this is the shortest we could get it and nobody thought that would be beaten, but then somebody found this glitch or somebody found this wall hack or something and that took them down by half an hour and then so-and-so found this glitch and, you know, it just keeps going and people get better than the other person. They do a perfect run that has no problems and, and he kind of walks you through like each step 
step and each video is probably maybe 20 minutes, but it's super interesting. He has probably 20 or 30 different videos. It looks about like 25 videos or so. Everything from Mario Kart Wii to Donkey Kong 64 to Sonic the Hedgehog 2, Legend of Zelda, Mario 64, Portal, a really, really large swath of these things. Actually, those are a lot of Nintendo games, but those are the ones that tend to be speed run the most. And like, yeah, seeing that you can beat Mario 64 in a few minutes when I remember playing that game for hours, hours. and hours and hours yeah. and hours and hours that like someone can just do a few things that are highly technical and super hard and weren't discovered for years and years after the game was released and, you know, beat Bowser within a few minutes is fucking crazy to me. And it's cool to see that progression. I'm looking at the thumbnails on your computer and I see a Pokemon one. I, I really want to watch the yeah. Pokemon. Red, blue, Half-Life, Half-Life 2. Yeah. This is all super interesting if you're into this kind of thing. And, and he keeps the uh, the times of these videos relatively low. I think the longest one is like 40 minutes, but usually they're around like 20, 30 minutes. So they're pretty easy to sit through. You don't have to dedicate a long time to them. It's not an entire movie or something, but super interesting. He's a pretty decent narrator and I don't know. I find it fun. What's the channel name again? Summoning Salt. I'll put all this stuff in the show notes, obviously. Always. Yeah, check it out. All right. What's your cool thing, Brian? I found a hidden video on YouTube this week. I did some digging. Hidden? Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, it has just a couple of views. It's pretty, pretty niche. Niche. Oh, I see. You're you're being sarcastic. I couldn't come up with a cool thing this week. Uh, <laughs> so I was just going to call it the coolest thing that I did see this week was the uh, Avengers Endgame trailer. So listeners out there, if you are excited, we can be excited together because holy shit. I cannot wait for April. You should all assemble somewhere. Oh, come on, Marshall. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't have anything cool this week, but uh, I watched that trailer probably 10 times. So I, I haven't seen it. As I mentioned earlier, I, I don't watch trailers. I ascribe to the Jeff Kanata unsullied philosophy. Uh, I like to go into movies relatively blind so that I am delighted and surprised by the twists and turns of narrative and... Um, I think Bryn is the exact opposite of me. Bryn will look up the script of a movie and read the script before going and seeing the movie. I've done that once. I did that with Arrival because I, was, I had read the book or the short story. Mm -hmm. And then I looked up the script beforehand because I heard it had leaked or it had been worked on for a while. And I was curious how much it had changed. And then I watched the movie. But I think that's the only time I've ever done that. Looking up the script and the dialogue and all that stuff like that's scening and all that. I bet he does that shit on like Star Wars and stuff. Bryn knows what's going to happen for the next decade of Star <laughs> Wars movies. He's ahead of, he knows what Disney's going to do before Disney does it. He's, <laughs> yeah, right. he's predicted it all. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm normally an anti-trailer person, but this one, I think what I learned was in the Infinity War trailer, they didn't really give away a whole lot. And so I felt more comfortable watching this, that they were going to be respectful of me as a, a viewer. You nailed it. That's the main reason that I don't watch trailers is because they've actually become disrespectful. I feel yeah. offended when they literally give away the whole movie. Well, it's not it's not the director, it's not the producer. They give it to a, like a trailer house that right. makes trailers. That's their job. They're good at making compelling trailers that get butts in seats. And usually that means giving stuff away. And I've seen so many movies that I know when I see a scene, even if it's only a few frames of it, which every fucking trailer ends with like this rapid fire machine gun yeah. of, of quick shots. But, but my brain frame rate is high enough that I can see all that <laughs> shit and register it. So I'm like, oh, that's a, that's a shot from the third act. Like, I know where this is all going, right? Yeah. Like, I've, I've seen this character bleeding on the ground, or I've seen that person hanging off of a cliff. I know where this is all going. Sure. And it's ruined. <laughs> so I spend two hours sitting there going, when are we going to get to that cliff, you know? 
So I just don't I just don't watch it at all that way. It can be surprising. I see. Maybe it's still best for you to avoid the trailers anyways. And I know you're going to do that anyways, but I, I said the endgame one was respectful, but you could still discern quite a lot from watching it. My guess is that Marvel has a better control over their trailer cutting because they're trying to <laughs> juggle so many balls at once. Yeah. That it's like, no, let us do this. You'll fuck it up if you give it to right. somebody else. Right? And they did a good job. Uh, I just read it's the most watched trailer of all time. I thought you said it only had a couple of views. Uh, <laughs> oh, right. Sarcasm. sarcasm. <laughs> just, a, just a couple, 230 million. Oh, shit. And two, how long? Two hundred. It got 289 million streams in 24 hours. Wow. A movie trailer. Yeah. That's nuts. Also, can we like take a minute and appreciate the fact that YouTube didn't break during that? That's an incredible <laughs> amount of traffic. To- well, to be fair, I think that 289 was spread across uh, Facebook, Twitter, oh, okay, and okay. YouTube. I think YouTube has like 60 million, but still. 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 That's a crazy amount of pressure to put a system under and have it not break. And that's just one video. One video. Yeah. <laughs> In one day. Boggles my mind. I love it. Cool. Marshall. Well, cool thing, Brian. Good job. Thanks. Way to, way to save it to the last second. Appreciate <laughs> really? that dedication. Yeah. Clutch cool thing finder, Brian. All right. We're done. We are done. How can people get a hold of us? Uh, we're on Twitter. We're at Design Details FM on Twitter. Huge thank you to you, listener, for listening. Yeah. Uh, let us know what secret shortcuts you know about in iOS, macOS, or dare I say Android. I'm, I'm really keen to learn all these little hacks that people figured out. Well, if you know any, send them in and we'll we'll uh, read them out in the follow-up of next episode. Sure, yeah. So we're at Design Details FM on Twitter. Thank you so much to Sarah and Drew, our producers and editors who make this show possible. Uh, we're pulling this episode out on a Sunday. So Sarah and Drew, thank you. Short timeline on this one. Uh, of course, if you want more podcasts, go to spec.fm. That is our podcast network for designers and developers just like you. We've got tons of shows on there. That's at spec.fm. And of course, uh, check out the show notes. Marshall does the show notes for design details every week. And they are very, very, very good. Those are at spec.fm as well. So just go poke around. Uh, So that's it. Another week. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Much appreciated. Hope to see you back next week. Bye. I've noticed, for example, that at Brian underscore Levin. Who's that? This <laughs> <laughs> asshole, I know. That Brian has taken more of a developer role at Spectrum. And so I'm... Cu- at, at with Spectrum. Uh, sorry. Yeah. Come on, if you're going to read it. You're just making this really complicated. All right. Would you like me to start over and include sorry. ats and underscores? No, no, no. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay. You can restart it. If- I've noticed, for example, that Brian has taken on more of a developer role at with Spectrum. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, fuck. <laughs> Sorry, Drew. Outtake? Outtake.